0: Today's scripture is from Romans 3:21 through 31. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. No, by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law.
1: All right, church, well, let's take our Bibles together, if we could, and turn to the passage that Hannah just read Romans 3, verses 21 through 31. Today, we conclude our series, Holy and Holy, in the book of Romans, Romans 1 through 3. And as you're turning to the, the last passage in this series, in Romans 1 through 3, Uh, Let me just start this morning with a quick historical vignette to introduce what we're going to be talking about today. About 100 years ago, during a, a British conference on comparative religions, experts from around the world were debating what, if any, belief was unique to the Christian faith. And there were some towering intellects that were part of this discussion, trying to figure out what is unique to the Christian faith. And so they started to to eliminate possibilities. Is it incarnation? No, other religions had different versions of God appearing in human form. Was it resurrection? Is that what's unique to Christianity? No, other religions had accounts of resurrection from death. And so the debate went on for some time until the incomparable C.S. Lewis wandered into the room and said, what's the rumpus about, gentlemen? And as he found out that his colleagues were discussing Christianity's unique contribution among the religions of the world, Lewis responded, Oh, that's easy. It's grace. It's grace. Philip Yancey continues the story by writing, After some discussions, the conferees had to agree the notion of God's love coming to us free of charge, no strings attached, Seems to go against every instinct of humanity the Buddhist Eightfold Path, the Hindu Doctrine of Karma, the Jewish Covenant, and the Muslim Code of Law. Each of these offers a way for one to earn approval from God. Only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional. In other words, it's not about what I do for God, it's about what God has done for me. He died for me, He took my place. That's what differentiates Christianity from the other religions of the world. Today's message, Harvest Decatur, is about G-R-A-C-E grace. God's righteousness at Christ's expense. G-R-A-C-E grace. And there are a few things that I want to teach you this morning from Romans 3. A few unassailable doctrines about salvation from this passage. Martin Luther said about this passage that the one that Hannah just read, the one that we're studying today, that, that this passage is the chief point and the central place in the book of Romans and the entire scriptures. In fact, I heard a pastor this last week that said if somebody comes into your house this week to steal your Bible, first rip out Romans three twenty-one through thirty-one and then give them your Bible. Make sure you get this down, even if you lose the rest of your Bible, because what we have here in these few sentences is the summation of the truth of the Bible, all of the truth of the Bible in a nutshell. This passage is the central thrust, the central message of all that God communicates to us in the hundreds of pages of scripture. If you're looking for a passage to memorize in 2020, have you set your, your goals yet for 2020? I would say consider Romans 3, 21 through 31. This is the truth of the scripture in microcosm. This is the distillation of the Bible into one passage in just a few sentences. And the central theme that orbits this passage, the central message of this central message of the Bible is grace. Grace. God's righteousness at Christ's expense. God's righteousness at Christ's expense. So, I want to give you this morning four truths about God's grace from Romans 3, 21 through 31. Church, everybody ready? Got your Bibles open, do you? Here's number one. Write this down. God's grace, church, is indiscriminate. It's indiscriminate. Paul says in verse 21... But now, thank God for that but now, in Romans 3.21. Martin Lloyd-Jones calls these two words, but now, the most wonderful words in all of Scripture. Why does he say that? Because Paul just spent the last two chapters of Romans dealing with painful specificity about how we are sinners separated from God. And, And Paul just lays it out. The, the, the depravity, the human depravity that, that, you know, we're in trouble. We're in trouble And the culmination of Paul's whole denunciation of human righteousness is in chapter 3, verse 20. Look at that with me, just a few verses before our passage today. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. That's the verdict. The judge drops the gavel, condemned, guilty. We all stand condemned before a righteous God. Humanity is doomed. And, and even before this, you know, Paul, like a, like a gangster, he riddled us full of these Old Testament passages. No one is righteous, no, not one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their feet are swift to shed blood. There is no fear of God before them, before their eyes. Good grief. Wow, you're wearing us out, Paul. I mean, at the end of that section, you want to put a paper bag over your head and cry yourself to sleep. We're all horrible people, is what Paul says. Now, sometimes I try to imagine myself as the, the original audience, you know, the Roman Christians that read this for the first time. And can you imagine, you know, the, they bring the letter from Paul, and like, oh, 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 we got a letter from Paul. And they start reading, and they gather everybody up, and let's read it. And they get to about the middle of chapter 3. And they're like, "What? why are we reading this? Can we, can we take a break or something? Can I get a drink of water? Paul is wearing us out with this. Is there any good news in this letter at all? But then we get to verse 21, right? We get to these beautiful words. But now there's hope, Harvesticator, for us. There's hope for depraved humanity. And here it is. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. In other words, you know, the Old Testament, the law and the prophets delineated our sinfulness. Boy, did it delineate our sinfulness. Paul's already done that for us. But the, the law and the prophets also testified to our hope. It also foreshadowed a righteousness that would come apart from the law. It also prophesied a Messiah, who would provide us salvation from our sins. Do you remember the the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus was on that mountaintop with his disciples and he was transformed before them? Who was on that mountaintop with Jesus and his disciples? Do you remember? It was Moses and Elijah. Good job, George Bennett. That's why he's an elder right there. (laughs) Moses, Moses, why Moses and Elijah? Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets, The law and the prophets testify to the fact that Jesus is the Christ, that there is a righteousness that is coming to us apart from the law that is found in Christ. The righteousness of God, look at this, verse 22, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. Now, we've we've talked about this for a while. This is, I see this Passage is the climax of Romans 1 through 3, but we've, we've addressed this before the fact that God's grace is indiscriminate. And the key words in verse 22 the, the ones I want us to focus on are the words all and the words no distinction. Why those words, Pastor Tony? Because the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ is available to all who believe. The righteousness of Christ is available by faith to all who believe. There is no distinction. Paul's been working this and working this for two chapters. There's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or a Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter if you're educated or not educated. It doesn't matter if you're male or female. It doesn't matter if you are... Red or yellow or black and white, they are precious in God's sight. It doesn't matter if you're a good sinner, quote-unquote, or a bad sinner or a really, really bad sinner. It doesn't matter if your daddy loved you or if he didn't love you. It doesn't matter if you were raised in church or if you were raised in a brothel. This grace, this righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ is available for all. For all people, there is no distinction. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. God is no respecter of persons. I love the, the, the Christmas carol that we just sang about the peasant and the king both coming and worship and receiving salvation through Jesus. That is good. That is good. It doesn't matter what you've done, Harvest cater. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter who you've hurt. It doesn't matter who's hurt you. Salvation is available to all who believe in Jesus Christ. If you're using any of those excuses to stop, to not believe in Christ, stop doing that. Stop doing that. If you're, and here's probably more practical for most of us in this room, if you're using any of these excuses to not share the gospel of Jesus Christ with somebody, hmm, they're not worthy. None of us are worthy. If you're doing that, stop doing that. God's grace is indiscriminate. God's grace is indiscriminate. Here's another truth about grace. You know this, number two. So let me just let me just unpack this gift. See what I did there? God's grace is a gift. Paul says in verse 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I can't remember a time in my life when I haven't had that verse memorized. Praise God for Sunday school teachers when I was a little boy. Praise God for Awanas. I can't remember a time in my life I haven't had that memorized. I didn't have that on the tip of my tongue. All have sinned. And all have fallen short of the glory of God. The Anglican theologian Hanley Mole, he says this, he says, The harlot, the liar, the murderer are short of God's glory, but so are you. Perhaps they stand at the bottom of a mine, and you on the crest of an alp, but you are as little able to touch the stars as they are. God's grace is indiscriminate, yes, but so is God's judgment. All of us are the same. We've all sinned, and we have all fallen short of God's glory. And, verse 24, all are justified by his grace as a gift. Now, let me clarify for a moment what's going on here. We have two different alls. We have all have sinned, but not all are justified by grace, okay? The ones who have been justified are not the all who have sinned. So so let me just clarify. If I was if I had a you know a bullhorn and went out to the community of Decatur and just started talking, I could say all have sinned, all of you out there have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I could say that to every human being made in the image of God around the world. All, 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 all of you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us, me included, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But I can't say, verse 24, all are justified by his grace as a gift. It is only those who have received by faith that gift. Those are the all who are saved, okay? It's only the all who believe, verse 22, who are the all who are justified by his grace, verse 24. Everybody with me? So the the question for you this morning is, have you been justified by God's grace? Have you now? Are you a sinner? Yes, yes, Pastor Tony, we got that. We know it. Good. Good. Romans 1 through 3 did its work. The question is, not just are you a sinner, but are you a justified sinner by God's grace? Have you received the free gift of salvation that God gives you? Blaise Pascal, the scientist, he he was more than a scientist. He was a philosopher, and he said this once. He said, grace is indeed needed to turn a man into a saint. He who doubts it does not know what a saint or a man is. You need to be justified. You need to be justified by grace, by faith. Let's talk about that word justified. Let's un- unpack that a little bit. What does that word even mean? Well, the word justified is related to the word for righteousness in Greek. The Greek word for righteousness is dikaiosune. Dikaiosune, it means righteousness. And the Greek verb dikaio is related, and it means to justify. So you can see even in those two words on the screen, the, the delta, iota, kappa, root, that's part of both of those words. That's not always discernible in English as we use the words just and righteousness uh, differently in our language. To justify means to declare righteous. If we had a, an English word, righteous if I, I would use it. But we don't have that word, so we say justified. We are justified. We are righteous if I can put it that way. We are declared righteous before God. Now, stay with me because this is really important. I want you all to understand this, this language and what Paul's saying here. Justified means to put right with or declare righteous. Justified means just as if I had never sinned at all. You've heard me say that before, and I think that's a good mnemonic device for how to remember that word. Our sins are removed, Christ's righteousness is put in our place, it's imputed to us. The Reformers called this imputed righteousness, it's not our righteousness, Christ gave it to us by faith. Other uh, people refer to it as forensic righteousness, and this is key too, it's not that we are made righteous, it's that we are declared righteous, And, and that's different. It's not that we are made righteous, it's that we are reckoned as righteous or declared as righteous. That's justification. Because some of you might say, well, Pastor Tony, I thought I was justified, but, you know, I still have this problem with sin. I sin every once in a while. Yeah, 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 me too. When you got justified, you weren't made righteous. That's the process of sanctification as you grow in Christ. You were declared righteous. You stood before the judge. All the evidence was presented against you, and the judge said, not guilty. You are acquitted for your sin. Remember the courtroom analogy from last week? We've been acquitted despite the verdict of condemnation because of God's free gift of grace. Did O.J. Simpson do it? Did he do it? Did he murder? Did he commit murder? Probably, but he was acquitted. He was justified in a court of law. It's just as if he never sinned at all. And you might say, that's a horrible illustration, Pastor Tony. We're not like O.J. Simpson. Yes, we are. We are infinitely more like him than we are like Jesus Christ. That's the point. That's the point. Jesus Christ paid our debt so that we might be justified and acquitted before Judge God the Father. Here's another picture of that in verse 24. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. (laughs) Paul switches the analogy here from the courtroom to, to slavery and to being redeemed. And that word redemption is actually related in Greek to the word for ransom. Jesus said about himself, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a what? Do you know? As a ransom for many. We've been ransomed by Christ, by His blood. We we are no longer slaves to sin. We are no longer subject to death. We've been redeemed. We've been redeemed. If you can't say it, I've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus with a tear in your eye and a smile on your face, you don't understand. Are y'all feeling this? Harvest, are you now? This is good. This is such good stuff. How, how succinctly this passage encapsulates all of what the Scripture says about our state and about our, and about our salvation. You should memorize this passage in 2020. If you want a memorization partner, get Ryan Jackson to memorize with you. <laughs> or me. I'll do it with you. I love this passage. I'll write this down as number three. Grace is indiscriminate. Grace is a gift. But this too, I want to be clear about this. Grace is free. But it ain't cheap. Grace ain't cheap. Sonia usually proofs my notes on Saturday before I preach. She didn't proof these yesterday. She was busy. She would never let me get away with saying this. She probably would say, that sounds too country. (laughs) But I hope it proves the point. Grace ain't cheap. You know, I was thinking about this, too, this last week in, in, in light of Christmas and you know, December, we're like halfway through December now, right? And Christmas is everywhere. On the commercials, everything's Christmas, Christmas, Christmas. And I was thinking, like, oh, what a beautiful tie-in. You know, I can use this as a sermon illustration, how grace is a gift. And, you know, the more I started thinking about it, the more I realized, you know, this this is its not really the same as Christmas. Because the problem with Christmas, by the way, this is my Bah humbug moment in 2019. I have one every Christmas, so this is it. Just endure it, if you would. Bah humbug, All right. I don't think Christmas, the way that it's presently constituted, is a good illustration of three, the free gift of grace that God gives us. Because, you know, what's, how do we approach Christmas in our country, this season of gift giving? You know, gifts aren't viewed as this, you know, gift, this free will offering that's given to the undeserving, right? Gifts are expected in our world, gifts are demanded even. You know, none of us think of ourselves as undeserving. We demand it. And Santa Claus is checking his list and making sure who's naughty and nice. And if you've been nice this last year, it's time for Santa Claus to pay up, pay me back. I've been good. That's not like God's grace at all. So, you know, forget Christmas. It doesn't even work as an illustration here. Here's another problem with the Christmas analogy. I heard a podcast recently that said that there's a high number of Americans that are willing to actually go into debt in order to pay for their Christmas gifts this year. I have so many problems with that, I don't even know where to begin. But but the biggest problem with that in terms of an analogy is that when when those people give their gifts to another person, they don't even own the gifts that they're giving to another person. It doesn't cost them anything. It costs the bank or the credit card company. It will cost them something later. But at least at that point, the bank is giving you a gift. Thank you, bank. So that, I mean, ball humbug, okay, forgive me. It doesn't work. God's, God's free gift of grace isn't like that. It's not, in fact, this whole Christmas analogy is more of a foil for what we see with what God gives us. Let's talk about that. What does God give us? What is this gift? And what did it cost him? Paul says in verse 25, Actually, let me start in verse 24 and get a running start at this. By the way, verses 21 through 26, everybody see that in your Bible? That's all one long sentence in Greek. So I'm, I'm, trying, to, I'm trying to break this up into little digestible units for you, okay? So let me, let me start in verse 24 and just kind of get a running start at verse 25. Paul says, All are justified by his grace as a gift, those who have faith, through the redemption is in Christ Jesus. Verse twenty-five, Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Whew. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. Verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Whew, all right, there's a lot going on there. Let's take it apart bit by bit. First, verse 26, let me just say that those two words, just and justifier, those are Greek words related to the word for righteousness, the kaiosune. So let me translate verse 26 this way, to, to piece it all together for you. Verse 26, It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that he might be right and the righteous fire of the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, God is right in declaring us righteous in Christ. He is right to do that. He didn't pull a fast one on the devil. He, he they, it completes his justice. He didn't compromise his justice or his righteousness. When we come to the gates of heaven, when we enter into eternity, God's not going to say, oh, shucks, just get in here. I know you feel bad for your sins. Please, Lord, I feel I'm so bad. Oh, come on in. Because if God did that, what, what could Satan accuse him of? Unjust. That is not right. They do not deserve to be in there. They are sinners, and you are a holy God. How's God going to solve this problem? You know, we talk, in our day, you hear it all the time, you know, questions like, how could a good God send people to hell? You ever heard that before? People ask that all the time. How could a good God send people to hell? To be honest, the, the Bible never really addresses that question, not directly. And by the way, that's not how Satan would accuse God either. The real question is this. How could a good God allow sinful people like us into heaven? That's the real issue. How can God in his holiness allow us unholy people into his presence? How does that even work? You know, people think, people think in our day that the gift of salvation, we earn, the, we deserve the gift of salvation. God owes it to us. You know, God's like the Santa Claus in the sky. He, You know, we've worked for it. We, he owes it to us. We've earned it. Give it to us, God. You know, in hell, hell's only for Hitler because Hitler's the only naughty person on God's naughty list. All the rest of us are on the nice list because at least at one point in our life, we helped a little old lady cross the street. We're on the nice list. That's the way that we think. That's not the way that God thinks. That's not the way his justice works at all. In fact, I told you when we started this book, when we started this series in Romans, the, the question that Romans addresses is how could a holy God get an unholy person like me into his holy presence without compromising his holiness? Y'all remember me saying that? September 1st, three months ago, when we started this series. And, and I gave you that, the picture of this series, The Raven. Maybe you see it on your bulletin. And what does that raven represent on that graphic? It represents our, our unholiness. Our, we're holy, unholy. I wanted you to see that raven, that, that, that sermon graphic that, that Katie Grub made for me. And I wanted you to think to yourself, kind of like, like Edgar Allan Poe, you know, nevermore. I wanted you to feel the hopelessness and the helplessness of how we are without Christ. I wanted you to wrestle with how does a holy God get an unholy person like you and like me into his holy presence without compromising his holiness? How does he do that? How does God allow that? Do I have your attention? Here's how he does it. Grace is free, but it ain't cheap. It costs God something to give us grace and maintain his justice. It cost God something precious to at the same time guard his holiness and offer us grace. What did it cost him, Pastor Tony? What did it cost him? Here's the word that's used to describe it, propitiation. Propitiation. Christ Jesus, verse 25, whom God put forward as a hilasterion in Greek. As a propitiation by his blood, propitiation, I know you're learning some terms today. this is good. this is good. I can feel your brains growing, even as i'm preaching, and hopefully your 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 spirit is growing too. propitiation means atoning sacrifice, Helasterion it means it it means a means of forgiveness or or an atoning sacrifice. God put forth Jesus Christ, his Son as a, as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The gift of grace cost God something. It cost him his son. It cost Jesus his life. He shed his blood as a ransom payment for our redemption. And like I said, that's why we, we, we say with a tear in our eye and a sense of wonder in our hearts, I've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. I've been bought back. Jesus allowed himself to be a ransom payment for my sin. And that's... I, You know, there's some metaphor there, but that's not hyperbolizing. That's not just, you know, flowery or poetic language. Jesus really died. He really shed blood on the cross for our sins. God really put him forward as propitiation for us. And there's this great picture in the Old Testament, by the way. In the Old Testament, the priest, once a year, would would come into the Holy of Holies, into what was called the tabernacle, right into the middle of that tabernacle in the holy place, and, and where the Ark of the Covenant resided. Remember the Ark of the Covenant? I mentioned that a few weeks back. And in that place where, you know, the Ark held the, the, a copy of the Ten Commandments and Aaron's rod, the priest would come up to that golden box, the Ark of the Covenant, and he would sprinkle the blood of animals Seven times on that altar as propitiation, as payment, as, as wrath averting for the sins of the Israelite people. And by the way, there was, with that Ark of the Covenant, there was a, a cover over the Ark of the Covenant. You know what that thing was called? In Hebrew, it's called Kaporit. But in the LXX, the Greek translation, you know, the, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the LXX, it calls it Helasterion. Calls it propitiation, the mercy seat. Hebrews 9.5, by the way, calls it hilasterion. It's the same word that's used here in Romans 3 for propitiation. In the Old Testament world, the blood of animals was sprinkled over the hilasterion, the mercy seat, in order to avert God's wrath, to pay for sin, to expiate sin. It was the wrath averter, that whole ceremony. And in the Old Testament, that had to be repeated every year, every year. Every year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Priests would go in, sprinkle, sprinkle, sprinkle. Next year, same thing, paying for the sins of the people. Until, until a true and better Helasterion, until a true and better sacrifice, until a true and better payment, until true and better blood was sent by God to pay for our sin. Who was that triumbatter? It was Jesus Christ. And, and unlike the blood of bulls and goats and all of that ceremony, it was once for all time. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He paid for our sins. And verse 25 also talks about how he paid for the sins of the Old Testament, Israelites too. All of that is bound up in Jesus' sacrifice. That's God's gift to us. And it costs Jesus his life, his blood. G-R-A-C-E, God's righteousness at Christ's expense. God's righteousness at Christ's expense. What's the great analogy to this in literature? Do you know what's the the greatest presentation of this in children's literature? I talked about C.S. Lewis earlier. C.S. Lewis wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, that book that perfectly illustrates God's gift of grace to us. If you remember in the book, there's that moment when the mean-spirited and sinful Edmund, he's taken captive by the white witch. She owns him. She enslaves him. And the Christ figure in that story, Aslan, the great lion, he's unable to rescue Edmund because he must acknowledge the great magic in the world. But Aslan says there's a deeper magic in the story. In, in in Narnia, there existed from the dawn of time a deeper magic that allows one person to die on behalf of another person. Y'all remember this from the book? Y'all should read that too in 2020 if you haven't read that already. It's not just for kids. It's good. And so what does Aslan do? He gives his life for the boy, and he frees him from the clutches of the witch. Has there ever been a better presentation in children's literature of the of what we're reading here in Romans 3? It's grace. It's grace. It's a free gift to us, but it cost Jesus his life. One more thing, one more truth about grace. You can write this down as number four. If you're feeling humbled right now by what we're talking about, like if there's, if there's humility rising up inside of you, good, Good. That's right. That's the way it should be. If you're you're feeling even, you know, I don't know if humiliated is the right word, but really, really low in light of what Christ has done for you. Good. You should feel that way. That's what grace does. Grace is humility-inducing. We should feel humbled by this. There's another reason that the Christmas analogy doesn't work. You know... What kid really feels humble when they receive a gift at Christmas time? What kid really feels thankful? I didn't when I was a kid. Come on. I mean, you, you have to coach your kids to be thankful. Go tell Grandma thank you for the gift. Okay, thank you, Grandma. You know, they just run back to playing with their thing. I mean, it's just, they're just parroting stuff. They're not truly grateful. That, that comes later after the school of hard knocks. And unfortunately, I think people think about salvation that way. You know, just, just accept Jesus, and he'll make all your wildest dreams come true. Okay, I accept Jesus. When's that going to happen? I, you know, without any understanding of Romans 1 through 3, of, of sin, of sacrifice, of atonement, of depravity, of our need, our desperate need for our Savior. And some people might say, you know, why? <laughs> Why did Paul even bother with all that stuff about depravity? Why didn't he just skip to this? Why didn't he just start here? Because I think he wanted us to feel the weight of our human sinfulness that demanded a payment of blood, Jesus' blood. He wanted us to be humbled by that. He wants the offer of grace to us to be truly humility-inducing. And it is humbling to come before God and say, I'm a sinner, and I can't save myself, and I need you. And Speaking of humility, here's what Paul says in verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting, says Paul? There's no boasting in the law. We can't keep the law good enough. The law is condemning us. What comes of our boasting? Paul says, there is no boasting. It is excluded. There is no boasting in ourselves. By what kind of law? By a law of works? Absolutely not. You can't boast in your works but by the law of faith. And to be honest, you can't really boast in your faith. You know, I heard an analogy this last week. If a lifeguard comes and rescues you from drowning, you don't go to the shore and say, well, I'm sure glad I had faith in the lifeguard. Man, that was smart of me to have faith. No, you're dying and the lifeguard rescued you. What do you boasting in that moment? You boast in the lifeguard. Thanks for saving me. I was lost without you. That's how salvation works. Verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Some of you, you might even wonder, I know people wonder it in our world, why doesn't God just show everybody grace? Why doesn't God just let everybody into heaven? Why doesn't he just, you know, give us a break? Why do you have to die on the cross on the first? I didn't ask him to die on the cross. Why doesn't God just sit at the gates of heaven and say, oh, shucks, come on in here, you sinful little rascals, come on in. Why doesn't he do that? I would say for two reasons. First of all, and I alluded to this already, that would be unjust. That would make God complicit in sin and vulnerable to the accusations of the devil, unjust. God is unjust, letting sinners in without paying for that sin. But also I think that would make us ungrateful and unrepentant. You might say, well, why doesn't God just allow us to work our way into heaven? You know, create a plan, you know? 51% good works, 49% bad works. As long as you meet that, then you should be able to get into heaven. Same problem. That would be unjust. That would be unjust. Our bad deeds could never outweigh are good and one bad deed is enough to compromise god's holiness and we have an objective standard of holiness which is god we have to meet that objective standard if we're going to do it that way and secondly another reason we can't do that is because if we earn our way into heaven 51 percent, you know my my nice list is longer than my naughty list god you gotta let me in if if god does it that way then who are we praising when we get into heaven It's not praise the name of Jesus. It's praise the name of me, 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 me. I'm so righteous. Right? I mean, it sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? Not just because I'm singing it, because it is ridiculous. We can't do that. Verse 31, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Meganota. Absolutely not. By no means. Uh Uh-uh. On the contrary, we uphold the law. How do we uphold the law? We uphold the law because Christ upheld the law. We have imputed righteousness. And God doesn't see us anymore in our sinful state. He sees us as his son. He sees us sinless. He sees us righteous. He declares us righteous. We're justified. We get grace and God gets the praise. I'm okay with that. We get grace. God gets the glory. God gets the praise. Are you okay with that? I'm okay with that. If you want to be saved, here's what Paul's getting at. You got to get low. You got to get to the end of yourself. You got to stop trusting in your ability to save yourself. You got to humble yourself. And you know what? That's not just about justification, that's about sanctification. The more you know Jesus, the more you know yourself, the older you get. The more humble you get, the more low you realize you are, the more you know how desperately you need Jesus. Is that true? Some of y'all have been walking with the Lord for 30, 40 years. Are you more humble now than you were when you started? You should be. The, The grace of God just becomes more and more precious the older I get. Cause I know I can't save myself, and I'm, I'm not going to boast in myself. I'm going to boast in my Savior. I'll close with this. I mentioned *The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe* earlier. It's one of the greatest literary works in human history, in my opinion, at least the one that illustrates grace. But if I were to ask you, what's what's the greatest song ever written about grace? What would you say? Amazing Grace, absolutely. And if I were to ask you who wrote Amazing Grace, you would say what? John Newton. John Newton. It was a man named John Newton who He later in life, he worked with William Wilberforce to abolish the slave trade in England. And John Newton was a great man. And yet, some of you all know this, Before salvation, he was a truly horrible person who did some horrible things. Actually, before he helped to abolish the slave trade, he worked as a slave trader himself. Uh, He worked on ships, even captain ships, that took African slaves that were kidnapped from North Africa and sent them to different destinations to work as slaves. He said of himself once that I sinned with a high hand and I made it my study to, to tempt and seduce others. He was proud of his sinful state and he tried to stir up the sinfulness in other people. So when Newton wrote these words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. When Newton called himself a wretch, in that song, he wasn't hyperbolizing. He wasn't using flowery poetic license. He meant it. In fact, on Newton's gravestone, the following epitaph is written. You can read this on the screen. He said of himself, this is, this is his gravestone. You can go and see this today. It says, John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, But it also says this a servant of slaves in Africa was, by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the gospel which he had long labored to destroy. Let me ask you, Harvest Decatur can God save wicked and undeserving men like John Newton? Does God give grace to to damaged goods, so to speak, to wretches like you and me? Some of you might say, well, it's a good thing I'm not a wretch like John Newton is. Yeah, you are. Yeah, I am too. We're all sinners. We are infinitely more like John Newton in his sinful state than we are like Jesus. That's the point. There are only sinners in this room this morning. But thankfully, God offers grace to justify sinners. Are you a justified sinner in this room?